0: Welcome to the Dreaming Back to the Earth podcast. We are dedicated to exploring the concept that our dreams and their wisdom are a path to our soul rooted relationship to self and earth. During these podcasts, we share experiences, perspectives, and practices that foster an understanding of how each dream speaks to awakening and guiding us on a personal and ecological level. I'm Katrina Dreamer here with my co host, Mary Kay Casper. And we're joined today by our colleague and friend, Ryan Hurd. Ryan is a holistic educator and dream researcher, and the author of several books on dreams and nightmares. He's also editor of dreamstudies.org, a treasure trove of information on lucid dreaming and other dreaming practices. He's currently serving as director of spiritual development at Unitarian, Unitarian Society of Germantown in Philadelphia, PA, and is an adjunct lecturer at John F. Kennedy University. Ryan's books include the Lucid Immersion Guidebook and Sleep Paralysis, and he's the editor with Kelly Bulkley of Lucid Dreaming, New Perspectives on Consciousness and Sleep. Welcome, Ryan. We're thrilled to have you on the podcast.
1: Yes. Thank you for having me today.
0: So I really wanted you to come on the show to talk about your perspectives on dreaming back to the earth. And when we initially spoke, you and I had about a million ideas about that, so Maybe we'll have you back on the show. But what I would love for you to talk about today is this nature observation practice that you were sharing with me. Um, So can you tell us more about that?
1: Absolutely. So one of the things that I prize about dreams in general is that they reflect our waking life patterns, right? So not only our passions and our thoughts and obsessions, but also the way that we think, the way that we think in waking life reflects in our dreams. And they sort of, honestly, they tune each other, right? So sometimes we'll have a, an epiphany in a dream that will then have a reflection in waking life. So really, not one is primary in this dance. And, uh, and of course, this is shown out, right, in all kinds of cognitive studies in terms of dream content analysis and other kinds of ways of looking at it, but it's not just in the micro details. It's I think it really goes all the way up to the transpersonal in the sense that there is a dance between waking life and dream life. And, and, and the swirl is, is the earth. The earth is in, is in the mix. Yeah. Our connection, our relationship um, being part of nature is, is, a huge piece of this, and so you know that 's why we have apocalyptic dreams and it 's not just about our midlife crisis, which is maybe something <laughs> we can talk about later um, uh, so so for me, I have been working with this this dance in a number of ways over the years, and I developed a system of really focusing in on how dreams and nature observation can work together. To get past rational biases and move into new ways of thinking and being. Uh, and I've done this just for myself as a meditation, but I've also done it in terms of social science. And, and I wanted to talk about, because this example is so uh, wonderful, is, is, is some work that I did a number of years ago in Nicaragua on Ometepe Island, which is home to. Um, mestizos and people who are, do subsistence and dry rice farming for the market, and also coffee plantations. And hidden amongst these fields are some ancient boulders, and these boulders are all carved with wonderful geometric and uh, zoomorphic, you know, animals and people, and all these wonderful images. Um, into the rock art you now it 's a volcanic island, and so uh, and so these boulders go all the way up and and so sometimes you see images of monkeys and things like that, and sometimes it 's images of swirls and dots and all this kind of abstract imagery that we also see in dreams in other altered states I would add, so I visited Ometepe Island in two thousand and six to as part of a volunteer project to help map the rock art because it's being sadly slowly destroyed by some of these farming activities. Um, when, the, when the fields are burned, the, the rock exfoliates uh, and so it loses that top layer that has you know this, this rock art, which is pre-Columbian um, and probably the work of several different cultures. So I was gonna be doing that during the day, and I said, hey, this is an, <clears throat> an excellent opportunity to also see if I can dream about rock art and, and discover perhaps some new insights uh, about what is rock art, and, and, and maybe it'll just be what is rock art to me, and what do I think, and what are the biases that come up in my own dream world, my life world of rock art but maybe there's also some other kind of things that can be discovered Yeah, I just left that exploration open. And so what I did is that in the evenings when I had a little bit of time before the sunset, I would take a walk to a specific boulder site that had I I don't know um, about a dozen or so big boulders in a cluster. And, and a lot of them had some of spirals and, and other kinds of images on them. And I would sit uh, for about 45 minutes each session. And essentially, and, and take notes, I took notes. So it wasn't a, a, just a focused meditation, I was writing down some of my ideas that came along as well. Now, now the meditation itself, as a nature meditation has two components. Uh, it's basically a combination of body awareness work uh, that, that comes out of Eugene Gentling's focusing tradition as well as nature observation that comes out of the tradition of, of John Young and Tom Brown and the, the wilderness guides that, uh, that are active both in the Pacific Northwest and in the Northeast Woodlands. And their work comes from Native American practices. And so it's rooted in indigenous practices from you know those particular places. And so it was a combination of this bodywork with this nature observation practices. And the way it worked is this. The first part of it, I would essentially try to open my gaze so I wasn't focused, but rather using peripheral or owl vision, as John Young would say, and just start taking in observations. And at the same time, scanning my body for what is up, what's going on with me, and just noticing where my tensions lie, noticing um, yeah aches and pains, uh, and you know the 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 social conflicts from the day would arise and be like, "Oh yeah, there was that, and I'll think about that later, and essentially just checking in with myself, and this work is really nice because when you do it at first, essentially it's cleaning the palette in a way so we can make more truly connected observations in the moment, in nature, um, and get rid of some of our, you know, this plaque from from Mm. earlier in the day, basically. And so after kind of doing that, and sometimes focusing can lead to insights, and it didn't always do that, but sometimes there can actually be a, what. Generally, would call a felt shift where something would, you know, an emotion can actually be labeled as such. One can discover it as it becomes fuzzy, and then it becomes clarified, and then one can go through a transformation of a feeling. Um, that wasn't necessarily my purpose, um, but that would sometimes happen, which was a nice bonus. But really, I was just trying, like I say, to kind of cleanse the palate um, of consciousness. Um, and then I would go after that process, which would be say ten minutes or so. I would go back to my owl vision, um, into my observation practices, and essentially be in in an intersubjective way of knowing in that I'm noticing what's coming up in my body and my thoughts, and at the same time, I'm noticing what's happening in nature. I'm noticing the birds that are coming by. I'm noticing the squirrels, the howler monkeys, (laughs) which, um, right, maybe that's another another story for another time. The howler monkeys were, were quite interesting. Uh, and, and all this is going on, and and then I would sometimes you know, notice synchronicities that would happen where I would have a, say, a bodily chill at you know right before something would be reveal in the objective, world, so-called objective world, uh, and and just it was, it was like a tuning, right? And so again, there was not really a purpose to this as such as I was just checking in and being as present as possible in the moment. And then I would draw my attention back to the object of rock art and basically just sort of say, you know, what's showing up for rock art for me. Uh, and, and that was my meditation. So I had to do this. This is about 45 minutes. I do, you know, pretty much every night that I could for about three and a half weeks. Uh, and then at the same time, I'm recording my dreams. And because I was, I was having a lot of dreams. Uh, I was just dreaming of a storm um, and, you know, that's the travel effect. You know, that's that effect you have when, uh, you, know, you know, it's an uncomfortable place. Maybe uh, you're not sure where you are. Maybe the, the bed itself is uncomfortable. Uh, we, our vigilance goes up when we sleep someplace new. So I was having and recording, you know, three to five dreams a night uh, during this time. And, and I was also having lucid dreams because of that. And so I started doing lucid dream incubations That was basically the the counter practice to the nature observation. And I would say I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I would remind myself, if I realize I'm dreaming, if I know I'm dreaming, you know, let's see if I can get rock art to show up. Where's the rock art? And I had about six or seven dreams about rock art in that period that were lucid where then I would just essentially do the same thing, the sort of participant observation um, in the moment with the rock art in my dreams. So that is the two practices that they kind of were together, and um, I'll, uh, and some really wonderful things came out of it. But I'd pause now just to see if you had any clarifying questions about the about the practice. Um, the The idea was really I wasn't trying to create too much work for myself, but it was a lot of work. Mm-hmm. I was just trying to stay as open as possible to all of my to all of the things that came to me um, and get around that, right? That rational um, sensor that is, is so present in our lives.
0: Mary Kay, I'm going to, I'm going to throw it over to you. Do you have any questions for Ryan?
2: Um, I don't know so much question. I'm really intrigued because it sounds very similar to practice that we use in the tradition that I work in. And I'm, I'm curious about, um, What I'm hearing you say is that that the body, that you're really connecting with your body as you are gazing, um, noticing what is happening in the natural world. Like when you are with that, um, whether it's the stone um, or whatever's around you, I'm really fascinated by that, that place of really um, being with uh, meditation and. And at the same time you're noticing two different places you're in two different worlds the self mm-hmm. inner self as well as the outer self and that's I love that. I love that.
1: Yeah right I mean that's it it's it's uh, you know the concept of the dream body Arnold Mendel's work uh, and which is, clearly easier to see and comprehend in actual nighttime dreams, but it's, it's, it's something that we are living in all the time and it's the third body. It's, you know, it's trying to get out of our head and just being uh, aware of our thoughts, uh, but back into this, uh, this third body, which is the f- impressions from the physical body as well as internalized sensations um, and unconscious thoughts you know, who knows what else is coming up and expressing itself and just giving it, um, a forum for it to express itself. And, and, and it's a, it really is a practice because it gets easier. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and there's a wonderful thing about nature observation that works with this practice, uh, which is that it takes about 20 minutes to kind of get into the groove. And one of the things that, That John Young would talk about with nature observation is is that that's the amount of time 20 minutes or so that it takes for the birds in a natural area to become essentially accustomed to your presence Uh, and the squirrels follow the birds you know call basically and and you know when you walk into the woods it gets very quiet And we're like, oh, where are all the birds and where are all the squirrels? And it's because, well, they're hiding. And they were like trying to figure out who is this intruder and what are their intentions? Um, And after about 20 minutes, you know, it's specific birds and specific landscapes and specific hills and whatever, right? We'll, We'll be like, oh, okay, it's cool. And then other birds will essentially... Say, oh, it's fine, and they'll stop alarming, and they'll go back to their daily activities. And uh, John Young called that baseline. This is baseline consciousness in nature, and it's an inner subjective space. It's not. It's you are now embedded in that natural space. You have a place. I mean, now it can get disturbed very easily again if if the animals don't know who you are. But if you go back to the same place again and again you know, it's a cast of characters that they're there again. It's the same birds. It's the same squirrel. And they're like, Oh, there's, you know, that weird guy who sits there and pretty much (laughs) does nothing Uh, we can ignore or just, you know, move around and it's fine. Uh, And so over time that baseline consciousness can shrink from 20 minutes to a little less. Mm. Uh, And, and that's when we become accepted. And I would notice that in, on Ometepe Island in Nicaragua because there are these these haracas who were they're they're like jays they're a jay-like bird they're they're um, really loud and aggressive and anytime anything moves they alarm it and it's just like oh god please stop you know Um, and when I there was a, a time about maybe i don't know 10 days in or 2 weeks in when the jays stopped alarming me when i approached mm-hmm. the site and it was you know it was something you couldn't miss because <laughs> they're usually such jerks uh, and they were like oh there's there's ryan again coming for his sit so he's cool wow.
2: Wow.
1: so it, it's wonderful the personalization that comes with it mm-hmm.
2: How do you see the uh, breath being a part of that process of um, you know meditating or coming into relationship with I'm a familiar with his with the work of nature observation. I just wonder how you see breath being a part of that process
1: um, yeah so so breath work uh, is is definitely part of it uh, and there's not a specific breathing exercise to do with the general nature observation practice but noticing your breath it, like you would in a in a city meditation indoors can be part of the practice as well and and of course that helps once you notice your breath and it becomes you know and you maybe breathe into your belly a little bit and you have fuller breaths uh, the body relaxes and it helps the entire the entire thing um, but breathwork isn't the point of focus as it is with concentrative meditation that you would do indoors. Rather, um, I mean, you can go inside to do that, perhaps the center, but then that, right, that field of awareness is going back out in a concentric ring uh, to, to include all the immersive elements of nature, the sounds and the smells. And, and um, you know, if they're not distractions from the breath, they you know, become the, the breathing as well.
0: So now I'm curious um, about what what you did discover over this time what what were some of the if anything right what but what were some of the either personal or wider connections that you made as a result of practicing this
1: yes yeah, so there were there were a number that had to do and it had to do with the nature of observation itself Hmm. Uh, and the themes, you know, there was something I worked with. I worked with the nature journal. Now I would not expect people to normally do this, but this is what I did. I, I worked with the journals and I worked with the dream texts as a phenomenological text. And I did an analysis and grouped them into themes and all that kind of thing and come up with synthesis and, and really to went through that academic process um, but really, uh, one can can do that without going through all of that work to see just what are the you know what are the repeating themes? What do you what do you see in in your observations? And what's coming up that's new in the dreams that may have been unnoticed before? Um, and so one of the themes was simply this idea of um, that the the focalized ver, uh, yeah the focalized. Western consciousness, it's so um, sharp, and and we just focus on one item in particular, uh, and what happens when we go to a peripheral state where we take in more information, uh, we see anomalies. There are more things that come up, and mm-hmm. so, so, for instance, in a dream I had, I was in the dream. I'm lucid. I, I'm aware I'm dreaming. I'm on a boulder, and I'm looking for rock art in the dream, and I think I see some out of the corner of my eye, and I turn my head and to, to focus on where it was, and it disappears, and then I do the same thing again because I see it over here to my right, and I turn my head to see it, and it disappears, and then, I, and then I got it, and I was like, oh, and so I stopped trying to focus, and then all the rock art emerged all mm. over the boulder. And it was just it revealed itself almost like fairy spirits, right uh, and And so it was like learning a different way of seeing hmm. um, and and a different way of thinking. and so this this observation happened two what was it uh, two or three days later in the field when I was doing you know my day job, which was we were looking for rock art that has not previously been recorded. Uh, and, and this was one of these times where um, I was looking at a boulder, and, and there was nothing on it, and and the sun was shining, and it was very bright, and I couldn't see very well, and, and I used my hand to feel the boulder, and suddenly I began to feel something, and it was these little indent, smooth indentations, and as I began to feel it, then I began to see it. And there was this, this sort of sense of, re, it was almost like that pat, pattern of revealing happened again in the waking world where suddenly with my eyes, I saw this enormous spiral come into view oh. and I previously hadn't seen. Uh, and in, And it was because of that texture. And then that theme of texture also showed up in dreams where there would be Looking for rock art and, fe- and and feeling the smoothness of it and whatnot. Um, so moving beyond, you know, this uh, eyesight as as awareness as consciousness, which is very typical. All humans do it, but West we as Westerners we have a very peculiar way of going about it. When it gets conflated with reason and stripping away, right? And isolation—that's that, that, what reason does—is it isolates and got you know. That's how we all get alone. That's how we're all lonely. Um, We're we feel like we're separate atoms. So that was uh, that was one of them. And then one of the ones that was I think more pivotal was this dream I had once. Of in the dream, on Ometepe, I was in a dark field where there were light curly cues, curly cues of light that were sort of languidly spiraling down through a, a, a vast mist. Uh, And at the same time, there was this vibration, this deep hum like vibration occurring. Uh, And, and so this, that was the dream. And then what happened in the field, and this had to do with during my nature observations is there was a, couple it took a couple of times to notice it and it's interesting because it's in in my documents as well is i would be sitting in meditation watching and listening and then i would hear a hum Uh, but i didn't call it a hum i said there's this weird something there's this weird sound it sounds like a mosquito is close by and that's what I i told myself it was a mosquito and i wrote it i wrote it down and then it came back and it more into my and i was like no that's not a mosquito so there is a there's a hum going on and it took to the third session of hearing it that i realized what it was was there were these cicadas the cicadas uh especially around the setting of the sun were really pretty loud and they are and usually it just takes one or two to be nearby to be very much like in you know in your face uh, when the cicada began to sing sometimes there would be a hum happening around the boulders and I realized it's the reverberation of the cicada happening in the boulder field uh, these boulders are resonant they're, they're, they're creating mm-hmm. uh, a, a place that creates uh, that that traps and redirects sound uh, so so that was the the observation and it took four times for me to even notice what was happening. And then I began to realize there could be something here that's going on that's more than just these cicadas. Uh and it, as it turns out, these particular boulders indeed have cupules, which are small cup marks that are uh you know were basically done in a prehistoric setting by somebody pounding or grinding onto the stone. Uh and and they're it's strange, but they're often not talked about in the archaeological community. They're, um, they're not as big as, um, as pestle and mortar They're not used for food production. Um, people say that they're maybe children did them or they're decorative or who knows what. Um, but this particular boulder cluster had one boulder that had say 12 or 13 of them on this stone. And the stone was a gigantic spiral on the side. Mm. And at the top of the stone were these little indentions of, of cut marks, kind of, you know, peppering the surface. Uh, well, one of the theories that's come out of um, some other archaeologists, Aaron Watson, for instance, out of the UK and his work with Stonehenge, is that these kind of cut marks could actually not have a purpose for, you know, they're not grinding acorns or cornmeal or anything like that. It's the sound production Mm themselves. So if you, if you have, say you're, you're got the stone on the boulder and you're either pecking at it or a grinding motion that if it's the the right acoustical environment, it'll create a resonant sound Mm -hmm. at the, at a particular frequency that could cause a shift in consciousness. And, and one of those shifts happens at about 40 Hertz. And so this is a known phenomena all over the world is that there are even some temples that take into this effect. This 40 Hertz phenomena is, um, is, it's very interesting. There's much to learn about it. Uh, so this is a testable hypothesis. Is what, what if these cup marks with, for these particular boulders did have some kind of acoustical significance? They were part of a ritual or part of a um, you know, um, celebration, um, but they were done to create sound and these boulders were chosen perhaps even to put rock art on because they held. they were alive, right? They held the sound. Because there's plenty of boulders that don't have rock art at all, mm. uh, and we don't know why, right? We don't know why why this boulder, not this. And you see the same thing in Paleolithic caves in France, you know, the stuff that's 40,000 years old. Why this panel? Do you have the bison, in the you know, the, on the in the frieze, right? And why this? And why not that one over there? And it turns out that most of these panels of the Paleolithic rock art in France and in Spain. Uh, are acoustically resonant. Mm. And so there, there's something going on in the, in that case. So anyhow, that was uh, something that came out of these observations is like, well, I could go back to Nicaragua and we could actually scientifically, you know, test this, um, look at resonances, look at folders and, and make some more observations. So that was surprising that something actually that could be potentially useful came out of it beyond just me kind of playing with my own consciousness.
0: That's so cool. Like my, I'm, I have, yeah, I have so many, wow, so many things. Um But I think the the biggest piece that it speaks to is, it's so interesting how shifting our awareness in that way can lead to these other opportunities to discover, whether that's you know, okay, this rock is resonant or. Discover something about ourselves or discover something about our connection to everything or, you know, so rather than uh, Continually being sunken into that rational focused mind that we operate in A lot of the time and having that intention to see the periphery How many things could unfold just from that particular part of the of the practice?
1: I love that. Yeah yeah, precisely, right. I mean, this is something, so that's really the value of it is, is that whatever we're interested in life and, and these practices are going to help with our focus and, per, and perhaps the dissolution of our focus.
2: <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Well, I wonder, I mean, so th- this happened in Nicaragua with, with the rocks that you worked with. I wonder how this whole practice could apply to someone. Obviously, not everybody can go to Nicaragua and work with stones, but even here, like in our everyday lives, could this same engagement with the natural world, or even with the world that's around us, if I went outside and sat with, which I often do, sat with a tree and did the same kind of meditation, like with the intention of dreaming and into being in relationship with that way that it would happen. And even someone who lives in the city, you mm-hmm. know, that being in relationship with a building or, a, you know, could that apply? And mm-hmm. And we gain that insight. I mean, I love what you're saying about it, the dream also teaches, can teach us about how we observe the world and we can apply that to how we, you know, whatever our blocks or our, our openings to being in relationship with the world could be based on how we observe it. I love that. I love that, that image of you, like letting not focusing and then opening mm-hmm. just, that was beautiful. <laughs> it's like, Wow
1: right yeah and that's and, and you never know what you're going to find and that's kind of the beauty of it um so there's a uh, an art historian and archaeologist named paul Devereux who whose work i also drew upon for this study and he basically does this with all kinds of he'll do this in nature but he'll do this at historic sites and he'll do this at in ruins he's based in the uk so he'd go to sitting you know circles of stones. Um, and the idea is just taking an immersive moment mm. um, with a sacred site and giving yourself the time and space to really be there and to uh, open up to its gifts, to be in a conversation with it. And, um, and it takes a little time and it's, and it's hard um, with, I think, especially touristy, developed sacred sites. I don't think one could have much success doing this at Stonehenge these days as a tourist, you know, unless you have some sort of special permissions and can come after hours. Uh but of course there's every hill it can be a sacred site. Um and certain certain hills and certain places, springs, right? Certain natural features have their own energy about them. Um that um, just await for us to discover that and, and be in conversation with it. I had a similar process. Um, this wasn't just for archeology, span I do this for fun, you know. but um, uh, a couple of years ago, one of my sitting spots for nature observation was uh, a creek. And it was a spot, I chose a spot cause it was beautiful and there was a nice place to sit honestly on a stone that like worked for me and, and it was just a great place to be. And then after a few weeks of being there, I noticed that a spring uh, is just very little, small little spring was coming into the to the creek pretty much right where I chose. And I had not noticed it for that yet. Right. And it just had escaped my notice. It was just a trickle of water coming down the slope. And and so I followed it up um, the hill and I'm in someone's backyard at this point um <laughs> in pennsylvania uh and and i find the source of the spring as it comes out of the ground and there was an old iron gate that had been thrown aside that was just sort of in the weeds uh that clearly used to stand up and guard that that way where that spring emerged and now like time had forgotten it nobody knew um and so I went to this neighbor's house who I was trespassing in, who I had not met before, and, sat, and knocked on the person's door, and, and, and a woman answered the door, and I think she was in her 60s, and I was like, oh, excuse me, listen, I, I live across the street, and I was uh, back at the creek, and I found the spring, and I was wondering if you knew about it. And she's like, oh, wow, no, I didn't. That's amazing. And she's like, I work in the historical society mm. for our town, and I, I, I can't wait to tell my friends. And, and it was just such a cool way of, you know, making a connection. Well, that night, I believe it was that night, and if not that night, then the night after, I had a dream about fairies. Huh. Right? And, of course, you're not surprised. but. <laughs> <laughs> and in the dream, the fairies were actually they were small little almost like disney fied fairies they were they were they were small and ephemeral and almost like butterflies they were in my mouth they and I had to pull them out of my mouth two two or three of them and then they they sort of were free basically uh, and and that was the dream um, and so you know i 've wow. been kind of thinking about that dream for a while and the different things it could mean. But, uh, you know, one of them is, is that we need to be talking about theories more. (laughs) Um, Yes,
0: please. Well, that, that leads me into another question I had for you that popped up while you were talking about your experiences. And that is, did you have any feeling of connecting with the spirit of that place or the spirit of that land or alternatively, have you experienced that by doing this practice other places, and maybe the story you just told is an example? But wondering about that.
1: Uh, so, so yeah, the so the practice helps get to know the spirit of the land, and like I would consider that dream of the fairies to be a like a a resonant yes. Of connecting to that piece of land mm-hmm. and, um, and uh, you know, please do, you know, please do more, basically. Um, or you're on the right track, or I don't know,
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: but it's it, it showed up in in and so you know, in fairies and in springs are, of course, historically noted as being an association and it's a, describing f- people have fairy experiences at springs and they're said to reside there, their power is there. And whether this is a metaphor of the human imagination or if it's I mean, you know, you can talk about it in any number of ways. But the thing is, is that when we hang out at Springs, we dream about fairies and we do it spontaneously.
0: Mm.
1: And so there's something very cool about that. Uh, and so, yeah, other, you know, I mean, you could do this, you know, at supposed haunted houses. I mean, this is, I think what, You know, the paranormally inclined do this work, Um, and uh, and they often just talk to the people who are interested in that kind of thing. Um, But you know, it's not just this idea of that there are ghosts and there are um, people who are you know unsettled in life, but that there's something where the house is situated on the land and it's either situated well, or it's situated in a way that, that the land and in, in, in the human interaction is not optimal and something can be shifted or moved. And sometimes it turns out it's something like um, that there's an underground uh, stream underneath a bedroom and people are having, you know, these these uh, experiences here. Um, and it's not always materially focused, but the thing is it's a it's an it's a inner flux of, of, of nature, material, and in the imaginal zone, that third realm, that dream body um, and finding ways to connect with that. And the only way to do it is, is to be embodied and to take some time to, to, to be embodied.
0: And I, the next piece that I'll, that I'll ask you about, I mean, it kind of goes back to what Mary Kay was saying too, is, you know, okay. So we always leave people after our podcast with a practice, right. And this whole talk has shown them a practice that they can utilize but what would you say um you know for someone who like I'll even just talk about my backyard so I have a a deck and I look out on a forsythia bush and kind of in the distance I've got a number of different types of uh, pine and deciduous trees and you know then a bunch of houses and a garage so You know, that's, there's nature there. Um, When I lived in Oakland, I looked out on skyscrapers and one lone deciduous tree. So how can people um, do this just in their everyday lives, busy, you know, they want to find a chunk of time to carve out to do this practice? What would you say?
1: Yeah, so I'll go back to what John Young says about this and about nature observation in general is, is that the core practice would be to see if you can find your secret spot, uh, a place where you can sit and be um, immersed um, enough where you can interact with some plants and animals. And it's best if, if, if it's a place that's easy to get to um so it's not a you know so it's kind of like you want your gym to be between mm-hmm. your work and your house, uh, you, know, you know otherwise like you're going to go less often uh, so something that's in the already in the flow of your life uh, and um, and it could be your backyard and, and in fact, there is some advantages to being able to to walk to a, a place uh, without having to get into a car um, and and do that and so it can be a park. Um, or the backyard where there's a pine tree and you know, a bit of a, a, a edging, right? Where there's some bushes and, and that's where the you know, the birds go. Uh, so it doesn't take all that much. It's really just about ta- um, making a practice of it. Um, it doesn't have to be a wilderness. Um, mm-hmm. And in fact, there's something, you know, the whole idea of wilderness, of course, doesn't even, it breaks down completely because what wilderness as a concept does, is, is reinforces this idea that humans are separate from nature. Um, and so if you're at a city park and you're um, hanging out with the pigeons, um, that's a nature awareness practice, right? Um, if you're in Lafayette, California and hanging out with the turkeys, that's a, that's a nature awareness practice. So it just sort of depends what's available and uh, yeah, and make it, make it bite-sized, make it lunch, Take your lunch out and, and sit.
0: Yeah, I like that. When I when I did a study called the Terra Places Project, I had people go out and do a nature sit. And one person, the best he could do was to look at the sky. And it was profound for him. He, he thought, well, okay, this is the best I can do. I'll look at the sky. I live in New England. The sky is gray a lot of the time. And it doesn't <laughs> seem to have much texture or anything to it but when he looked every day for 15 minutes he was astounded at what he found so yeah i like what you're saying just to to carve out what you can and and what you can carve out is actually going to probably be the perfect perfect thing
1: yeah exactly right so i have a secret spot now that uh that i can get to by going down the road and into, into the woods that are not far from my house. And it's on, a, it's on a hill, it's on a bluff. And now having sat there for over four years, uh, I begun to see how the sun moves back and forth over the seasons. And there's just all these wonderful like, ways that time passes that uh, I understood intellectually, but I didn't get it in my body. Until I took on this practice, and so time, even the passage of time, becomes embodied by doing this practice. So it's yeah. just really wonderful uh, how it telescopes, I guess you could say, um, over time, uh, and that body knowing because becomes moves into what are usually just concepts for us or abstractions, and 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 time becomes visceral passage mm-hmm. of time. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: yeah, Mary Kay, any. Anything else you'd like to ask or add?
2: Just, um, this is, it's, this has been wonderful to be with you. I, um, I actually did John Young's, uh, training, the naturalist training. So the sit spot and all that, I, I, when I lived in, in, um, Maine, I was always going out. So I, I, I love what you're talking about. And, and I just want to say uh, next week, I'm heading to the UK for a couple of weeks to, um, with a bunch of students, I'm a druid uh, priestess. And so I'm going to utilize your practice you know, to the, Excellent. the stone circles where my teacher has built some out there. So um, I'm excited to try it out. And I really appreciate what you're offering. It sounds exciting. I mean, and that real connection between waking and dreaming life and um, what might arise from really um, spending the deeper time with the stones and with the land. Um, So I'm excited about that. And I really appreciate what you're sharing.
1: That's great. I hope you have a, I hope you have a wonderful trip.
2: Yeah. yeah. And I, I, there's a part of me that wants to take this and have my, uh, my students that were taking, listen to this because I think that they would gain something even deeper around their practices with the land from what you're talking about. So thank you.
1: Mm, yeah my pleasure
0: yeah thank you so much Ryan for coming on the show and yeah I I just every time I talk to you there's always so many so many rich things that I learn and 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 now I'm inspired like uh, I want to hang up from this call and go out to the rocks by the lake and just have a little time so thanks for inspiring that for my day it's going to be nice awesome all right Thanks for listening and we will see you next time on Dreaming Back to the Earth.
2: Thank you. Mm.